You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And this is indeed Daniel Horowitz back here at CRTV at the conservative conscience this Monday morning. Really glad to have you guys back. Uh, Lots of great feedback from last week's episode with Ted Cruz. We got 22 full minutes with him. It was only supposed to be 10 minutes. Um, Really thankful for his time. Appreciate your feedback, by the way. And let me know. Let me know what guests you want to be on this show. And my gosh, we have a very busy week. Uh, I first want to encourage all of you to go to conservativereview.com, click on my bio, my, my byline there, and just go through the last seven or eight articles. There are so many important issues going on that I frankly don't even have time to get to today. Um, I'm still tired from the stupid daylight savings time. And, and by the way, you know, I, I didn't even plan on speaking about this today, but come to think of it, daylight savings time is the embodiment of everything wrong with our anti-constitutional system of governance, where the government creates a contrived problem. They either create the problem or naturally, you know, God created the world in such a way that it's not a utopia and there's inherent, you know, issues. And they enact a policy in pursuit of a solution, a problem in in pursuit of a solution, and then they create even bigger problems based on, and everyone forgets how we got here. I mean, so the whole idea was to save energy, which is just dumb, um, because we don't need to conserve. We need to produce, produce. This was a big gift given to us by George W. Bush in 2007. That 2007 energy bill was horrible. It was like the Obamacare of energy. So think about the irony. They said, hey, let's go and save energy. At the same time, they passed, in the same bill, the ethanol mandate and the cafe standards. The ethanol mandate and the cafe standards. Remember what they are. The ethanol mandate basically ensures that our fuel remains diluted and also jacked up the cost of food because we took 42 to 44% of all corn grown in this country and put it in our engine. But aside from that, it diluted, diluted the fuel. We get less fuel mileage out of it. And then they create a mandate that the blenders, the oil refiners, and we spoke about this with Ted Cruz last week, um, uh, you know, Philadelphia Solutions, biggest oil refinery on the eastern coast, the at least independent refinery, had to shut down because they can't fulfill the mandate. You know, part of the problem, not only is it expensive to blend it, it's a horrible f- form of fuel all to benefit some cronies, but actually, because of the other part of the 2007 Act, the CAFE standards, they make cars paperweight now, came at a very terrible cost. Cars are are, are very expensive. Now, I actually have a whole article on this. Um, I'll try to link to in show notes. Let me just make a mental note here to, to put this uh, in show notes later. But 
car prices are going up a lot since 2007 because of the cafe standards. But nonetheless, at a very painful cost, several hundred lives lost because of auto accidents, um, people getting crushed in these paper-thin cars. Nonetheless, they did succeed in raising the fuel mileage. Well, guess what happens? There's no longer enough demand to fulfill the ethanol mandate. So you have one government socialist mandate running to the tailwinds of another one. And oh, in that same bill, they had daylight savings time. So now my kids are off the off their rocker because it's still so light when especially the three-year-old needs to go to bed. It's really bad, by the way, uh, the fact that they kept it late in the fall, which is just devastating because you have, uh, I mean, you know, kids going to school 7, 7.30, almost 8 o'clock sometimes when it's still dark outside, and it's caused a lot of accidents. There's been a lot of good studies on that, um, but well, welcome to government. But at, anyway, I didn't mean to you know, go long into that, but that's really the embodiment of a lot of the issues we're going to talk about, how both parties identify a problem, a crisis, Sometimes it's a made-up crisis. Sometimes it's a real one that they helped create or they solely created. They either fueled it. It was already, again, sometimes, you know, the world isn't perfect. There's natural things. And rather than addressing it in a vacuum, they just go carte blanche. So, you know, we're we're dealing with Dodd-Frank legislation. Very partial repeal. Very weak sauce, what Republicans are proposing in the Senate. Nowhere near the full repeal that they promised, and it doesn't even touch the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was which is basically the death panel of the credit market. But anyway, you had in the recession a scenario where government just forced banks to issue mortgages to those that couldn't pay, and then they just parachuted in, like the arsonists being the firefighters. Hey, what's going on here? And then, you know, you had unscrupulous practices. You have, you know, you had the Enron scandal. Fine. You address that. You 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 punish the wrongdoers. But you, what you don't do is, you know, oh, I have a headache, so therefore I'm going to chop off my head. Therefore, I'm going to shut down the credit market of the economy and forestall the economic recovery for a decade which is what we did with Sarbanes-Oxley and um, you know, especially Section 401, the, the billions of dollars worth of paperwork and, and compliance. But Dodd-Frank and all this stuff. And we're seeing that with everything. They're still with the, you know, the school shooting, school safety. You created the problem, buddy. You created it. Hey, again, some of it is natural. We have a cultural problem. There's a mental illness problem. There's a lot of problems. It's a limit to what you can do. But we exacerbate it with these jailbreak programs that we fund at a federal level to incentivize localities and really pressure them to avoid arresting juveniles at all costs. Then I have my morning, my morning column out today where... Our schools are now a war zone in Suffolk County, Long Island, among many other places, because of DACA, because of open borders and the 300,000 strong Central American surge that we saw from 2013 to, I mean, it's really continuing, but certainly 2014, 2015, it was very big. It's, it's ticking up again. 
there were a lot of bad hombres that came in. So now we have an MS-13 crisis on our hands. You know, what's amazing, amazing, there's a headline in the weekend Washington Post, MS-13 is taking over the school, one teen warned before she was killed. This is a school in Suffolk County, New York. And Washington Post is now admitting that all these children that came over the border, well, many of them were MS-13 members or were later recruited for MS-13. And as we noted, the opioid crisis. No one wants to talk about the fact that it is mainly a fentanyl and heroin crisis brought on by DACA. By DACA. They created this problem. And now the biggest, most pristine solution, we need a DACA fix. Are you kidding me? I mean, we have, look, we're all pulling our hair out what to do with random school violence in America. But one thing you can do is not electively bring in other countries' violent kids to put in your schools. Oh, and not to mention the fact, force uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of unfunded liabilities on local communities, county governments, state governments, to pay for the bilingual education, all the social problems, the overcrowding and the schooling um, in many of these districts as a result of this. So I didn't even mean to get into all this, but I'm just saying it just reminds me, thinking of daylight savings times, time, how, how Congress does something stupid, causes a bunch of problems, and was like, hey, we need a solution to fix it. Let's go pass a comprehensive energy bill. We've seen this on every issue. Anyway, you know, last night, so well, this is really two nights ago, I'm <laughs> I'm still lo- I'm still delirious from losing that hour of sleep. I really need that hour of sleep. But this was Saturday night. Donald Trump held a rally on behalf of Rick Saccone, the Republican candidate for Pennsylvania 18 special election, because there was another rhino corrupt Republican that had to resign because he couldn't keep his pants down. And this guy is just, you know, just an impotent guy, doesn't stand for anything. And meanwhile, Republicans, because they have a horrible narrative, looks like they're going to get they're going to lose a seat. Trump won by what twenty two points. So Trump had a rally there, and I'll I'll be honest, I loved almost everything he was saying, except for a couple things on trade, obviously, on tariffs. But otherwise, I really agreed with him, and he was kind of giving this counter narrative on MS thirteen and sanctuary cities, and he said one thing that really struck me. And it ties into the upcoming agenda that I, want to, that I want to discuss with you. And it ties back to a thesis we've had about this Trump administration mixed with the problems of the Republican Congress since the beginning of, of, this, of this Congress, you know, last January. And Trump basically said, Congress needs to defund sanctuary cities. And I jumped out of my seat. I was like, I've been, I've been yelping this for, for a year. Mr. Trump, you have what is called a veto pen. Why did you sign three major budgets since you became president that not only increased spending up the wazoo, of course. No one's for cutting spending anymore. 
not only took every program that Trump in his budget put out by his OMB director pledged to cut. Instead, you know, it, it doubled these programs, doubled down on them. Not only did it include all the Democrat policy priorities, the bills continued to fund sanctuary cities, as well as funding, by the way, um, Planned Parenthood. Oh, and by the way, funding DACA amnesty. And oh, and by the way, funding visas from countries tr- Trump promised to cut off, to, to suspend immigration from, but the courts say, oh, you got to do it, and he goes and listens and doesn't demand at least Congress help him with the courts. You know, just just yesterday it was announced that ICE is looking for another fugitive illegal alien who killed an American with a, in a drunk driving incident. In this case, it's in Denver. And what has happened is Denver is a sanctuary city. This man was apprehended by the local sheriff's department, and they allowed him to post bail and run away before ICE could come. Now, these idiots, including the, and the courts as well, have said, well, you have to show there's an individualized risk of, abscond- of absconding, a flight risk. Otherwise, it violates their constitutional rights. And we have to let them go. Well, this man has now fled. So much for that. Every day there's another one of these stories. And Trump is really, what's so frustrating is he's tantalizing us with his message and it's, it's good. But then he goes and signs these budget bills that continue funding it and he doesn't even ask for it. Which leads me to the omnibus bill, which is really everything, everything in the coming days. The House plans to vote on it possibly this week to give away the last piece of leverage they have until the midterm elections to accomplish anything good. It's very simple. All Trump needs to do is issue what's called a SAP, a Statement of Administration Policy, that says, look, you guys are a separate branch of government. You could craft whatever bill you want, but just know that any budget that continues to fund at least law enforcement programs for I mean, I would argue you should cut off transportation funding too, but at least the law enforcement programs for these localities that violate federal immigration law, they're not sanctuary cities, they're fugitive cities. They're fugitives. They violate federal law. Not BS federal law that the feds don't have the right constitutional right to enact. The laws that that absolutely much like you know, the military is absolutely federal in nature. And it should say, if, if it funds sanctuary cities, if it funds fugitive cities, I will veto that bill. Say those words, Mr. President. Make it stick. Make your rhetoric stick. Don't just entertain us at a rally. Follow through with it. No one else is going to stand up for us. This is your time. This is your moment. Because keep in mind, Republicans have made it very clear. We, we talked about this with Ted Cruz as well. They're not going to reform the filibuster or enforce the Senate rules to require a talking filibuster. So nothing good will pass this year. 
Nothing good. Nothing. They're not doing budget reconciliation. So you can't even use that one bullet in the in your gun that they had in 2017 to get around the filibuster. That's what that's how they passed the tax cuts. They're not doing it this year because Frankly, McConnell and Ryan don't want to pass anything good. So it's a good excuse. Just don't do budget reconciliation. Well, look, what are we going to do? We we can't pass anything without 60 votes. So this budget bill that will fund government for the remainder of the year, they already gave up the debt ceiling. This is it. This is the last opportunity to enact our priorities. But where's the president? And in fact, it's even worse. It's even worse than our policies not getting in the budget bill. The left is on the cusp of getting their policies in the budget bill, as they have been the last couple of times, with Republicans controlling all branches of government. So basically, they're debating right now whether to put in an Obamacare bailout, which we know they're going to do anyway, The question is whether they're going to tack it onto the omnibus. So again, when Republicans control all of Congress, the question is whether or not liberal policy writers will be attached to a so-called Republican budget bill, not whether conservative writers will be attached. So there's the bailout. There is, and and by the way, we're going to have a lot more on health care, God willing, in the coming days. I want to have some of my friends who are healthcare policy experts on the show just to continue our discussion from last year on giving a vision of what healthcare should look like, why it doesn't look that way, who's at fault, and what we should do about it. Because again, you can't solve a problem if you don't define the nature of the problem and the cause of the problem. Um, you just show up, you know, you have the arsonist be the firefighter. So that's with the bailout. Then we have the internet sales tax. Now, I'd love to do an entire show on that. But this is the most egregious thing. It's going to be a massive tax increase on Americans, taxation without representation, regulation without representation. There's a good reason why if the seller is not in the same state, unless he owns a brick-and-mortar store in that state where you could charge that consumer, there is no reason constitutionally you should be allowed to collect taxes in one state on behalf of a taxpayer in another state. That is exactly why we have the Commerce Clause. You know, the Commerce Clause is used to take over financial industry, take over the healthcare industry, take care of take whatever, you know, institute ethanol, cafe standards, and you name it. But the one legitimate function of the Commerce Clause was to prevent interstate tyranny, one state from, you know, screwing another state. That's exactly why it was. Now, this is another area where Trump is so off message. Trump supports it. You know, him and the Democrats, Lamar Alexander, Mike Enzi, Christy Nome, um, all the all the rhinos support it. Big government people. And and by the way, the reason they support it is because they're not man enough to raise people's taxes in a transparent way. They're saying states don't have enough revenue because with the rise of e-commerce, we're not getting enough sales tax because a lot of it's through the internet. And then, you know, unless there's the store is located here, then we lose the revenue. Well, everyone's losing it. Um, the internet is the internet. It's the engine and the beacon of freedom. Why tax it? Why, why just let it go? And anyway, you have to pay shipping usually. So it kind of equals out, um, you know, and then most stores are brick and mortar and internet. You know, some aren't, but most have 
both components. So, you know, it's not like it's, it's a carve out for the internet. The internet is not a special interest. It's a, it's a venue. Um, anyone could come to it. It just logistically, it makes no sense. But they say we don't have enough revenue. All right, if you don't have enough revenue, well, either cut spending, but God forbid should you ever do that to end the welfare programs and all these stupid programs that actually create more problems than they solve. But why not raise your state income tax? Raise your property taxes. Raise your fees. Raise your state gas tax. Or just remodel the sales tax in the form of either clamping down on use taxes, meaning put it directly on your buyers or put it directly on the seller. But as you well know, the way a sales tax work works is that you put it on the seller to collect on behalf of the buyer. So that's where you have the problem interstate. So just do one of the following or one of the aforementioned, I'm sorry. So anyway, the reason why they don't want to do it is because, well, that's through the front door. People will be ticked off. This way, you create an interstate cartel where you each collect each other's thing, and, and the you know the citizens can't shoot at anything. They can't, you know, I, well, I shouldn't mention the word shoot, I guess, nowadays. I meant, you know, politically, um, there won't be any reprisal electorally because, well, it's not me raising your taxes, the other state. That's for the same reason why the political cartel wants to only impose this interstate uh, uh, internet sales tax. That's exactly why our founders didn't want it. It's taxation without representation. It's also regulation without representation. One of the things Trump is saying, he's saying, we need to do this. Amazon is being crony. So he's attacking Amazon. The problem is Trump is a little bit outdated. Amazon supports the internet sales tax. At the very early on, maybe eight years ago when this whole thing started, they were against it. But now they have brick and mortar in, in all 50 states. So they're paying it anyway. Um, it's eBay and some other stuff. You know, maybe Overstock, I think, opposes it. But um, Amazon supports it. So, I mean, again, Trump needs to get his message and his rhetoric and the policies lined up. Um, you know, he needs to calibrate the sights on his, uh, his, uh, political AR-15 there because it's way off. Just makes no sense. Amazon supports it now. And why do they support it? Because like every other regulation, again, this is not just a tax to tell people that you, you know, normally you go into business. All right. I have to know the tax law of my state of Maryland. In this case, you're going to have to know there's about 3,000 sales tax jurisdictions, not just states. A lot of states have counties that have different amounts, different days, different items are exempt, There's different rates for different items, different tax holidays for different items. And there is no good software to instantaneously calibrate that yet. So for the big corporations, they don't mind it because it will hurt the very mom and pop shops that these clowns claim that they're going to represent. So it's not just you know increasing taxes and taxation without regu- uh, representation. It's regu- regulation without, without representation. I want to do another show on that. But anyway, they're thinking of sticking that in the budget bill. So that's another thing we're going to deal with. Obviously, they're going to throw more money at so-called op- opioids after they already threw, threw $7 billion at it. Again, arsonist is the firefighter. I mean, it's unbelievable it's heroin, it's fentanyl, it's the open borders, it's the sanctuary cities that cause the problem. Because yes, I know, I know, I know we've always had a drug problem in this country. Of course, um, 
you know, we've it was, but it was mainly marijuana and cocaine. The insane, and we had a little bit of heroin, but the insane increase in heroin and then now fentanyl that was all for, started after the 2012 DACA suspension of 287G program, basically a suspension of all immigration enforcement, and that flooded the country with it. It's unnatural. It's all external. That's very avoidable. Now, I love when people say, Daniel, what do you mean? The war on drugs doesn't work. But then the same people say we have a crisis now. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either it's a natural part of society that always takes place, or there's something crazy unusual that's taking place now. Now, it's the latter. The numbers show it. I mean, there were 60,000 people who died in 2016. The numbers are probably higher last year. It's insane. But... Instead, we want to talk about regulating pharmaceuticals, regulating doctors and prescriptions, like get rid of the heroin and fentanyl. And then on the prescription side, um, you know, I hope to have another piece out to explain why a lot of it is the Medicaid expansion and then just other anti-market programs. Again, this is a classic example of how you have a problem that is somewhat a little bit natural in, in the world, a little bit of addiction, the culture of addiction. It's turned into a crisis level by the government, and then the same people who promoted those policies ignore those policies as the 80% cause of it. And there's a lot of moving parts on this issue, a lot of different factors. And then they say programs, funding, money. What? So that's what, what, that, that's another thing they're going to have in there. Um, all these things are a big threat in this bill. And President Trump is just not speaking out. I mean, he the, the impression of the members in Congress is that he will sign whatever they send him. So they're going to send him a heaping pile of excrement. Make it stick when it matters. The rhetoric at these campaign rallies are nice, but if you're going to sign the budget bills that do the opposite, we've got a problem here. And again, the reason why the budget bills are so important is because legislatively they're not passing anything. So the budget bills are the only point of leverage where we can enact our policies. But instead, the left is, is getting their policies because half the Republicans agree with them. So this is a very big threat. And then finally, there's the threat of gun control. Trump is saying some good things on this while also saying bad things. But then, you know, he, he puts out this... Uh, the White House put out last night this uh, blueprint. They, 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 they're not putting out a bill, but some sort of blueprint of what they want to see happen. And they're going to have some sort of task force headed by Betsy DeVos. What? what I, there's nothing to do with anything. What, aba- what about the legal alien problem? Again, you want to talk about school violence? You want to talk about opioids? I mean, that's a big part of it. And Unlike other things which are very natural in our society and they're hard to deal with, this is totally elective. Get them out of here. Doesn't want to talk about that. Doesn't want to talk about all these government programs that create a culture of leniency. I mean, now we find out that on Nicholas Cruz, they had an entire folder where he was, you know, just fantasizing about shooting up a school. So... Far from being this random act of violence that is only caused by access to a gun and there's nothing we could have done but approach gun control. Again, notice the theme always is cast a wide net, ban prescriptions, ban guns, ban, you know, ban basic 
you know, banking practices. Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, Obama, I mean, everything. Uh, Take a problem that's somewhat natural, make it worse with government intervention, then shut down everyone else and don't address the core problem. You know, it's funny. uh, Two days after Parkland, there was this woman, 21-year-old girl slash woman in high school. I know that sounds funny, but you'll just bear with me for a moment. Her name was Abigail Hernandez. In Rochester, New York, Rochester, New York, two days after Parkland, I believe it was February sixteenth, um, she was caught. At least I don't know if I don't know if she was officially plotting it, but definitely threatened to shoot up her school. She was a DACA recipient, illegal alien, and guess what? The police showed up at the home, and they found a shotgun. Now let me ask you something: Could an illegal alien own a shotgun? No. Even legal immigrants don't have a Second Amendment right, according to the law, right, legally. So we have gun control, and yet they still got a hold of it, okay? <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is a complete joke. If that doesn't bring it out, and, and yeah, by the way, we have a, yeah, 21-year-olds in high school. Thank you very much. Um, th- th- this is what is flooding our... Our country, 21-year-old in high school who got DACA. So, I mean, think about the burden on our schools, but just remember how we're always told, oh, these kids, let me tell you, they're the best of the best, the best and the brightest. Well, how did she get DACA? I think we know the answer to that. But just to get back to the school stuff, you know, this week, the House is voting on some stupid bill to throw another hundred, a few hundred million dollars at school safety. So another program with benchmarks and this. I mean, we have – that wasn't what happened here. You don't need a new law. It, it's like so, someone does something insane. I don't know. They, they decide to drown themselves into, in, in a pool one day. Like, we really need to have a – Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank equivalent of pool regulation. Like, wait a minute. Address what actually happened. Address what happened. This is so insane. Everyone is off message. The president has such an opportunity to get back on message. Um, But but I'm I'm, I'm afraid that these couple weeks, we're going to miss the last opportunity we have. So this is this is what the omnibus bill. And then the, and then there's the spending too. I mean, President Trump did promise to cut spending. And he puts out he has his OMB director under Mick Mulvaney and Russ Vote. Good, you know, Russ Vote's great. He's just got confirmed as deputy OMB director. They put out a memo that look, I understand that you busted the budget caps, but it doesn't mean all the money has to be spent. And OMB actually wrote a letter to Congress saying, um even though you have the authorization now legally to bust the non-defense spending cap by $63 billion. They said just spend $10 billion of it. They allocated, they earmarked a certain amount for it. So the, the other $53 billion we don't need. That was the official White House position. But is Trump going to make it stick and threaten a veto? No. So now we have a debt crisis, which is the true public policy opioid crisis. You want to talk about addiction. There's your addiction. And he's worried about the trade deficit and not the fiscal deficit. 
when, as we explained before, the trade deficit, a lot of it is caused by the fiscal deficit because we're exporting our treasuries and our debt to, to service dependency and Democrat votes rather than other exports. That's the true problem. That's the true national security problem. Not the $375 billion trade deficit with China. I mean, I have a trade deficit with my local supermarket. I don't trade them anything. The difference is they get my money. We both benefit. <laughs> a trade deficit's not a problem. A fiscal deficit is. China owns $1.2 trillion of our debt, so we could create these stupid programs that create dependency, that create addiction in our country, that destroy health care in this country, that give ethanol cartels and healthcare cartels and education cartels a monopoly to destroy society. And that's the thing. We need a narrative. We need a narrative from this party to go through every facet of the economy, especially in areas like education and healthcare, and demonstrate to, to rising adults and, and young voters how when you graduate from college you know, with tons of debt and the ability to only find a job earning $30,000, $40,000 after all of that, is because of an ed- and and then now you have to worry about healthcare and it's a fortune because of there's no price transparency we have no functioning market and now insurance is a fortune unless you get subsidized so that's why they want to get subsidized but we don't show them another vision we don't show them why it's like that who made it like that and again, I get back to the opioid stuff. I really feel so passionate about that. Government caused it both on the border side, on the illicit side, which is the much bigger problem, but also on the healthcare side. And then now they want to like go after – what do you mean? I mean prescriptions – for prescriptions, most of the heroin and fentanyl deaths – it's not from your 50, 60-year-old guy. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but in large numbers, your 50, 60-year-old guy who has health problems, um, back, severe back and neck pain, and was prescribed stuff, got addicted, and then somehow got hooked onto heroin. It's mainly the cultural problem with the 15, 18-year-olds. Look, some of them might have painkiller problems i mean usually they you know they're you're young i mean for the most part it's a cultural thing they get hooked on it because the supply thanks to sanctuary cities and daca opened the floodgates and yes we had it before but it used to be a lot of money now they could get it for 10 bucks a pop or something so anyone could get it they od on it and we have major problems in our country it's not you know don't don't start going after people with pain and treating all of them like they're drug addicts. It's not true. There's an element of overuse, but there's a very big element that's not, that's very much needed. And you don't want to clamp down on that. You don't want to do to prescriptions what you did to the credit market with Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley. You don't want to ban guns because we, did, we had some stupid school that did some stupid thing. Sorry, when I say stupid school, I don't mean the the students. I mean the superintendent and the sheriff and the government officials there, the resource officers that had a whole file on him. He came to school with weapons, 45 complaints. They didn't even expel him, much less arrest him. So what, now we're going to go after all guns? We flood the country with heroin and fentanyl. Now we're like, hey, we need to clamp down on prescriptions. And again, there is the element of that that's because of Medicaid expansion. To the extent – there's a lot of people that aren't overprescribed, but to the extent that, that, that there's too much, um, 
picture picture this. You know, thank God I'm pretty healthy. One ailment I have, the only ailment I really have systemically, is the spring allergies. Starts about now. I'm really dreading it. Early on, late, you know, very early spring, late March, April, maybe a little bit into May. After that, I'm fine. And it, it, I mean, it could be pretty debilitating when, you know, you feel like you have to sneeze every three seconds. You can't function. And basically, none of the, you know, Claritin, the, the, what do you call that? The regular sprays, the, um, forgetting what it is, Flonase, it it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't do anything for me. Just doesn't. You know, the one prescription that seems to work is Zatona and Cunazel. Very ex- they're very expensive. Now, the reason why they're expensive, again, a lot of this is because we don't have free markets, but um, it could be easily three, $400 a pop at least. And I don't know, how much do you get out of one nasal spray? It doesn't last me the entire six to eight weeks that I need it. I probably need three or four of those things. So that's a lot of money already. So what winds up happening is every year, you know, I, I really I, I save it for the worst times that I need it, you know, the kind of the peak of the season. And then, you know, I try to go with the 12-hour Sudafeds that, that kind of work pretty well for me and, and, and work around it with some other remedies. But if you – now, these aren't addictive, these nasal sprays, but I'm just saying theoretically if they were, um, if you told me I'm going to have a program – to give it to you for absolutely free. So you could just keep going to that pharmacy and you don't have to pay a dime. Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to be binging that thing. Forget it. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to be taking it almost year round, you know, to ensure that I'm going to preempt any discomfort I could ever have. Cuz why not? That's what's happening with the painkillers and Medicaid expansion. Um I mean, the evidence, the evidence is overwhelming. And we're going to have some articles on this just to, to go through what's going on and, and some of the data. There, there's a House report, um, no, Senate, Senate report on this, and we've cited it before. But there's also from our buddies at FGA, um, a think tank, that nine of the top 10 states for opi- op- opioid deaths are Medicaid expansion states. People on Medicaid are six times more likely to die from prescription Opioid overdose, 71% of opioid deaths in West Virginia were people on Medicaid. Now, again, some of that could also be a little bit cultural too. But the point is, now, you know, Obamacare has largely made healthcare way too expensive for people who aren't on the dole. But on the other hand, um, for people who are, I mean, they just throw it at you for free. Now, Medicaid is garbage. You don't get good health care. You don't get good access. You, a lot of people don't take it. And that's part of the problem. You don't have health care. It's just go to some clinic, prescribe, 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 free, free, free. It doesn't cost you. So there's no internal financial check against that behavior. It's very unnatural. You know, we believe in free markets and to bring down prices, but there is a natural price. It's not free. So, you know, you, you are going to be a little bit cost conscious. These people, if you're on Medicaid, they just throw, you just get it for free. So you're going to binge it. So, again, I, I want to be, you know, I'm sure we have a lot of people in this audience. I don't want to stigmatize you. Say, oh, you're, you're not toughening it out. You're, you know, taking Advil. You're a wimp. You know, you're getting it. No, no, no. There's a lot of people who really need it. And that is legitimate. And, and, and that's my point. 
the, the federal government has no right to clamp down on that and to get between you and your doctor. But I'm just saying to the extent that there are non-illicit, you know, prescription drug, a culture of, you know, overusage, a lot of it is on Medicaid. That is really where the problem is because they're not getting good, you know, broad healthcare treatment. It's all just going into free drugs. Um, and again, probably some with, you know, cultural health habits too ties into that. And then they, they OD on these things. But nobody wants to say, maybe we ought to clamp down on Medicaid, which is destroying healthcare in America. Also, I, you know, and I didn't mean to get so far off into this, and we got to go soon. I got to jump on a conference call. But just wanted to let you guys know that I, I hope to have Dr. Kevin Way Casey back brilliant guy who's so funny he he wrote the book book on healthcare economics um and you know i was speaking to him over the weekend and and he was railing against this corporate practice of medicine how you know medicare and medicaid has given the cartel such a monopoly because the consumer is not the consumer government gives them 60% market share so then the private practices are drying up now part of that is because of the facility fees medicaid and medicare will pay twice as much for the same doctor, the same procedure performed either in a hospital or a MedStar-owned clinic, wink and nod. That's why they're buying up all the doctor's practices. And then the, then the corporate masters start setting policies. And you know they want to make people happy, and it's all you know, no pain, no pain, make sure there's no pain. That's a, that's a part of it too. Um, I don't want to blame individual doctors, but sometimes doctors can't even practice because the corporations are practicing it because Medicaid itself gave them that power. And then ironically, Medicaid comes and pays for it all for the patients so they can kind of binge and overuse things that they probably shouldn't be overusing. But that's the theme. The two themes for today we have. Trump's got to make it stick when it matters. And we have the arsonists being the firefighters on issue after issue. So we're going to have a lot more this week. I got to run really quickly now. Ran into just you know scheduling conflict. I wanted to get into the courts. That's another area where Trump is not making it stick. Jeff Sessions is, a, is out there rightfully railing against these court decisions. But why are you breaking law to follow a district judge? Why are you illegally issuing DACA permits in order to follow a judge? Make it stick. Take it to the next level. Otherwise, your presidency is gone. I have an article out today on how judges are now trying to prevent Trump from blocking people on Twitter. I mean, that's how much of a lame duck he'll be if he doesn't stand up to the courts. president has some good ideas, good intuition, but if he doesn't make it stick, it's going to be meaningless. They're going to get crushed in the midterm elections. We'll have our analysis on what happens in PA 18 on Tuesday this week, that special election. But we're going to get all the liabilities of Trump and none of the benefits unless he steps up his game. All righty. We'll, we'll have a lot more, hopefully some more Meet the Candidate segments as well. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.